0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's Talk Pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory in Ruskin, Florida. Thanks for joining us. So what is the biggest and baddest aquarium you've ever seen? How about the biggest and baddest fish? Best-selling author Steve Alton blows all of those out of the water with his latest sci-fi horror novel, Meg, Hell's Aquarium. In this fourth installment of Alton's Meg series, we learn more about Carcharodon megalodon, Meg for short, the enormous prehistoric relative of the great white shark, and what could happen if Megs were still around prowling the oceans or captive at some of the largest aquaria in the world. Join us as we talk with Steve about Megs and Mega Aquaria, other denizens of the deep water Philippine Sea Plate, Bond 007 Girls, and his Adopt an Author program for teen readers. We'll be right back after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com, hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. designerpetsweaters.com Let's talk pets on petliferadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Steve Alton, best-selling author of Hell's Aquarium. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Uh, thanks for having me.
0: So I uh really flew through Hell's Aquarium, and it was an incredible ride. I have to ask, before we even start talking about the book, have you always had an interest in marine biology?
1: I've always been interested in sea creatures, and uh, especially when I was growing up, I loved to read about prehistoric sea monsters or great white shark attacks, and and, uh, there was always a blurb about megalodon, but never much other than uh, an old Smithsonian picture of six nerdy-looking scientists sitting in this giant jaw and then uh when I was thirty five and looking for a, a change in careers and I decided to write a book, uh, I sort of tapped my teenage years.
0: So what is Meg and Hells Aquarium all about for the uh listeners who haven't actually had a chance to
1: read it yet? Well Meg Hells Aquarium is the fourth and best in the Meg series and, and Meg stand is short for Car Megalodon, the seventy foot, seventy thousand pound prehistoric cousin of the great white shark. And uh Megalodon was a real creature. and inhabited all the oceans and we find their teeth in phosphate pits in South Florida. They used to be covered by ocean.
0: Now, in, in the book, you kind of talk a little bit about potential for these things to actually still be around. Could Megalodon actually be alive today?
1: Well, the thing about the oceans is that they cover 70% of the planet and we've only explored about 5% of the ocean and less than 1% of the deep waters. So, you know, we really don't know what's down there, and Megalodon is not like T Rex that disappeared 65 million years ago. They only disappeared anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 years ago, depending upon who you ask. And so, it's possible these creatures, or at least some of them, could have gone into deeper waters.
0: What other monsters do you discuss and uh, are featured in Meg Hell's Aquarium?
1: Well, in Meg Hell's Aquarium, I sort of um, you know wanted to bring back all the scariest sea monsters that ever inhabited the planet, and to do that, I uh created an ancient sea beneath the Philippine Sea Plate, which is a mysterious uh, sea plate in itself. It's where all the Mariana Trench and the other deep water trenches are located. And uh, in this Panthalossa Sea, which dates back 220 million years, we've got everything from Leoplordon to um, Mosasaurs to Dunkleosteus. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, if it swam in the ocean and it had big teeth and it was big, it's it's probably in the book.
0: So, uh, what are your uh, thoughts on any of these being around, at, like Carcharodon?
1: Uh, well, with Carcharodon, Megalodon, there's a, there's a much greater chance with some of these other prehistoric sea monsters, not as likely. You know, that's where we stretch the fiction a little bit. But uh, with Megalodon, yeah, I mean, there, you never know what's down there.
0: So, you mentioned the Philippine Sea Plate, and obviously that played a, a major part in the book. How did you come uh, up with the idea of using that the Philippine Sea Plate and kind of the uh, mystique around it for Sort of the action.
1: Well, throughout the Meg series, the Mariana Trench plays a, an integral part because this is a, a seven-mile deep, fifteen-hundred-mile-long, unexplored gorge at the bottom, and uh, you know hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean uh, spring life into this deep water abyss. The Mariana Trench is located at the Philippine Sea Plate, and um, the Philippine Sea Plate itself is a small plate that's being pushed from all sides and. And uh, it's actually, the borders of it are trenches themselves, including the Mariana Trench. So I thought, you know, this would be a pretty neat place to do it. I just have to have a reason that's scientifically based that this uh, prehistoric ocean could exist. And so I in doing research, I managed to find three doctoral students in Australia <laughs> who are now scientists. And they had done a, a study on the Philippine Sea Plate and its unusual depths and contours and and so I contacted them, and and uh, we sort of worked at a scientific basis for this Panthalassa Ocean, Panthalassa Sea to be uh, in existence.
0: Had they done any uh, deep sea studies down there themselves? Had they seen anything kind of interesting, as well as kind of working the uh, science out with you?
1: Yeah, they they found that the uh, sea plate itself was divided into diff- different sections, and some of them were were far older than the others, and that that sort of played into. My scientific aspect of of how there could be this long lost agency down there, so that worked out really well, and and they also lent me use of their um, topography images, and which I included in the book, so readers can get a sort of a, an understanding of how it works.
0: Yeah, that actually did help me quite a bit. I'm I'm kind of more of a visual person as well, so I, I did appreciate those. Now uh, this summer marks the the 35th anniversary of Jaws, how much, obviously there was a uh, Jaws influence in this, but how much would you say Jaws played in, in your, I guess, desire to kind of write the book as well as in parts of the book that you were you were penning out?
1: Well, as a teenager, when I was reading Jaws back in 74, 75, you know, that was a, a major influence in, in wanting to know more about great white sharks. And, and Jaws was sort of the springboard into doing research on shark attacks and, and understanding how great whites worked and So I'd say it was you know a pretty strong influence. Also, when I sat down to write Meg, the original of the uh, four books, in 1995, I was determined that uh, you know the one thing I loved about Jaws was the shark attack scenes, and then you know there was a a plot involving all the other characters and you know Brody's wife cheating on him with Hooper and things like that. And I wasn't as much interested in that aspect. I I wanted to see more shark attack stuff. So (laughs) um, you know I made sure that when I wrote the Meg series that you know there was action in you know at least every chapter.
0: So I guess how would the shark and jaws compare to Meg? <laughs>
1: the shark and jaws, the great white and jaws, would just be a, a basically a snack to a full grown megalodon, and and uh, you know you, you just can't even compare the two. I mean, if you think of what a, a megalodon is, it's it's a great white the size of two greyhound bustles back to back, and that's just a big
0: fish. Now. You mentioned in the book and also in the acknowledgments, uh, the Georgia Aquarium, and, you know, I did notice kind of parallels with their whale shark exhibit and and all the things that went into collecting housing, that sort of thing. Can you tell us how they helped you out in, in your background research and what kind of ideas you got from that with regard to kind of these, you know, mega fauna
1: yeah, I, I was fortunate enough that uh, when I was writing Hell's Aquarium, I was contacted by a, a PBS guy in Atlanta, Georgia, who was actually wanting to do a story on the Shell Game, which is my book about the end of oil and the next 9/11 event. And and uh, I asked him if he had any contacts in the Georgia Aquarium. He said he did, and and so we arranged when I was up there doing the interview for a, a sort of a backstage tour of everything, and they they brought me back into the tanks and and the filtration systems, and they taught me how everything worked, and I took extensive notes, so that in transferring that information to um, Hell's Aquarium, uh, you know, there's part of the plot involves a facility in Monterey called the Tanaka Institute, which is this huge aquarium that houses these megalodons, and so the Georgia tour was really intricate, uh, an integral part of of my education on how aquariums work, and and not only did I learn a lot, but, you know, I was able to Sort of break down the information to the average reader,
0: and I think even in terms of like the transport, it sounded like you kind of had a, a, a you know pretty good feel on you know what would be involved with transporting. Did they talk with you about transport at all? How did yeah, you get we, all they that?
1: did, and, and I sort of uh, extrapolated that information to transporting uh, two megalodon pups, which are actually a little bigger than what a, a full grown a juvenile whale shark would be.
0: I guess in terms of aquariums, did you think, or do you think an aquarium would be able to keep a megalodon successfully if there really was one, or or do you think that that would be something that would be really tricky?
1: Well, it's hard to keep great whites in captivity. Uh, Monterey was able to do it for a short amount, but the tank that they kept it in wasn't built for a great white. You know, great whites are are going to be sensitive to metal and and other materials in the tank. The the tank's got, if, if the tank is big enough, then I don't think there's a problem keeping it. You know, with a megalodon, you can have a pretty big tank and you can still see the shark moving through the water. With a great white, you know, they tend to put them in these small tanks to appease visitors, but it's not necessarily very good for the fish. I think it's possible that you could keep a megalodon in captivity if you were able to capture one, but the tank would have to be huge. And that's part of the problem in Hell's Aquarium, that they've got two tanks. They've got this huge lake-sized facility for Angel, which is the 70-footer, and the offspring are all kept in a small meg pen and, and they're they're sort of it's much too small for them.
0: So, I guess when maybe going back to the first meg book, when you were writing these, did you have a feel for kind of like the big storyline, the big the big picture and and I guess you're working on a fifth book in the meg series now or did you sort of have each book kind of, you know, at a time when you were you were developing the stories?
1: Well, I never imagined that it would go four deep. <laughs> I figured I'd stop it too, but then uh, I came back to the series later on, and it set up for some pretty interesting sequels. So, but yeah, I mean, e- each book, you know, is sort of encapsulated as its own story. You can read them separately, or or you can follow them one through four.
0: Now, a lot of the book I really enjoyed. You had a, a lot of kind of current appeal and relevance, and even some of the things your characters would say about various things, you know, including like Dubai. When you included Dubai in the book, how, how did you research this and did you have a chance to go over there or, you know, speak with folks in Dubai?
1: No, I you know, I just don't have the time or budget to do that. I mean the information on the internet's pretty extensive about Dubai and, and what I needed to know is a little bit about the culture and how they build things out there and and just the mentality of, you know, that they're trying to be the biggest and the best of the, of everything they do and they, they put that effort into all their hotels and they they put it into their amusement parks. And, and so it seemed like the perfect setting to create this Disney World-like aquarium-themed park. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed designing it because I I think that if it existed, I'd want to go see it. Yeah,
0: me, yeah definitely. Me too. It was actually interesting, too, uh, you know, because they had that recent, I guess, major leak over in Dubai. So obviously it wouldn't have been your design if, if it, uh, you know, if it leaked like they had over there. <laughs> but there was, I don't know, you saw the video, right, on that, for the uh, the major leak over there?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't see yeah. that with an
0: aquarium. Yeah, at the mall, yeah, the Dubai Aquarium Mall actually had a major leak. So there's actually on uh. YouTube, there was a video of the water kind of just, I think, ankle deep in some areas. But when I was reading the Dubai part, I was, la- I was kind of laughing. I didn't know if you had that intended, but it was there. So that was kind of cute. Now, uh, you also raised some really good questions about keeping kind of large, more difficult aquatic species in captivity. Um, you know, some of these maybe, you know, you intended on purpose and maybe some were just kind of a follow-up. From well, the
1: I know t- I'd be doing your show a year later, so i advise <laughs> this.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, I guess, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the size limitations. You know, for some species, what would be some maybe factors you would... You would think about, you know, for or against, you know, whether we're talking about size or maybe population structure, you know, being endangered, endangered. non-endangered. What are your kind of thoughts on that since you sort of bring that up a little bit in the book?
1: Well, I think most of the information comes from the Georgia Aquarium, what they provided me on their their backstage tour. And, and, uh, you know, they've got, you wouldn't think it, but aquariums have to have different currents in them. And so they they create these artificial currents so the fish can swim with the current and swim against it. You know, a fish as large as a whale shark or, you know, in the extreme cases, a megalodon would need, uh, you know, a habitat that offered a variety of different aspects of the ocean, gradient temperatures, uh, the proper lighting, the proper, um, obviously, the, you know, the the mixture in the water so that's you know, as, as pure as possible because... You know, these animals are defecating in their own tanks, and not only does it have to be filtered, but, you know, it has to be super clean because they're, they're drinking their own water, and the ocean sort of takes care of it themselves. But, you know, all these factors go into building an aquarium, and, and for the average person, you don't realize that you're just looking at a big tank filled with water with fish in it, but there really is a lot more built into the tank. They have ultraviolet lights that emulate the sun's rays, and, and they've got other aspects that you just wouldn't think about.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely true. Well, I've got more questions for you, but uh, let's take a short break to hear from our sponsors and then continue our discussion of Hell's Aquarium with best-selling author Steve Allen right after these messages. Molly, here's your dinner. <coughs> Zeus, that's not
1: your food.
0: Purchase your cat tree trade today. Go right now to cat That's cat tree C A T T R E E T R A Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk
1: pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet
0: Life Radio. Pet Life
1: Radio.com. <laughs>
0: We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, best-selling author, Steve Alton. Now, in the book, Steve, going back to kind of some of the more cool stuff you had as well, you you mentioned one thing I I noticed uh, was your kind of discussion, a real brief on DARPA and they're interested in training sharks for the military. Where did you get that idea to put that in there? And uh, have you any more info on that sort of thing?
1: Well, I'd, I'd run across that information earlier, and DARPA and you know other agencies like the CIA are trying to use sharks and dolphins as, as means of uh, mind detecting and, and God knows what else that we don't know about, and, and uh, sort of a, played a small part in Meg Hell's Aquarium, but not a big one. Um, I think it was the background of one of the uh, the shark experts that they brought in to uh, to understand what was going on with uh, the megalodons.
0: Yeah, and I think I was doing a little quick. Check too, and I guess based on kind of that implant they were using in the shark to uh, sort of get them to right.
1: Yeah, that was all. That answer, was all based yeah. on real science. They actually are implanting um, these little receptors in, into the sharks' brains and and uh, stimulating their senses so that they that they actually can you know almost zombie sharks that they're, they're controlling.
0: I thought that was pretty cool. Going back to kind of the high tech stuff you included, what were your inspirations that's, that's for that's
1: our taxpayer money at work, by the way? <laughs> yeah, exactly. DARPA that's has a lot stuff of things. that you don't see in that big Pentagon budget.
0: That's right. Or you have to really know somebody or read between the lines or something. In terms of some more of the kind of cool tech stuff you brought into it, what were your inspirations for the submersibles? You had some you know, obviously the uh, the cool submersibles in the first book and then you uh, included some additional ones in this in Hell's Aquarium.
1: Well, when I create submersibles, uh, it's got to be scientifically plausible based on real science and it also has to be something that's visually fun and something that if I was piloting a submersible, this is what I would want out of it. So In the first book, the first and second book, Meg, the uh, abyss gliders were more torpedoes with wings, small wings, which increased the claustrophobic effect. In Hell's Aquarium, the subs have evolved into something that's more designed like the shape of a stingray. And, you know, the stingrays are much more hydrodynamic in shape. And um, what I did was uh, I, I took the information that I had come up with and, uh, Sent it to a forensic artist who has worked on developing uh, vessels for uh, designs. He's, he's an artist, and and uh, so I had him design the craft and worked with him. And, and And I actually, you know, I put pictures of these things in the book because yeah, it's fun to do for the reader, but uh, it gives them a better understanding of what these things look like.
0: Yeah, I definitely like you know the diagrams, but and also when you had kind of the huge. Sea monsters and then the little tiny watercraft right next to them. That was kind of good for scale. Now, uh, Lana Wood, you know, the Bond actress, being in Meg Hell's Aquarium. How did that all happen? What made you decide to put her in there?
1: Well, all the characters in my books are actually real people who have sent me bios and, and descriptions of themselves and entered contests that I have every couple months on my monthly newsletters. And so it's it's sort of my way of giving readers opportunities to immortalize themselves in the books. And uh, it makes it easier for me because I don't have to come up with these. You know, after a while, it's tough to come up with names and and descriptions of minor characters. I mean, each book might have 60 of them. So by opening up to the readers, it's a lot more fun for me, and they give me information that's much more interesting. And I try to curb the storyline to fit their particular description. I was in the middle of writing Hell's Aquarium when I received an email from Lana Wood, who played Plenty O'Toole in Diamonds Are Forever. And I'm a big Bond fan. I read the books when I was growing up, and, and I loved all the movies, and uh, especially the earlier ones. And, and um, it turns out that Lana Wood is a fan of my Meg series, and her grandson is a huge Shark fan. And she had a simple request, and that is, could she be a character in the book? Well, of course, absolutely. <laughs> Lana Wood and, so we exchanged phone numbers and we we called each other up and we talked and became friends and I created a scene for her and you know her only request was that it was just going to be a vicious scene and <laughs> uh, it's a little you know you have to understand that writing this scene Lana Wood's older sister Natalie Wood drowned right you know in the same boat with Robert Wagner and you know and there was a, all sorts of accusations going on and, and so to, to kill her sister off, even in, in the pages, was a little strange. And so when I finished the scene, I sent it to Lana and I said, listen, I just want to make sure you're okay with this because it's really violent. And she loved it. And um, later on in the year after the, the hardback came out, we flew Lana and her grandson into Arizona where they have the, the largest Megalodon jaw in the world, which is about 10 feet high and it's filled with real teeth. Uh, some of which were over seven inches, and uh, we took um, a photo. Sh- we did a photo shoot and a video shoot with Lana uh, in the jaws, so it really worked out well.
0: That is great. I, I assume she. Uh, I wonder if she would have been happy if you killed off her grandson too. They might have been going over a little bit too much, over the line possibly.
1: <laughs> now not want to spoil it for the
0: readers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Yep. Now, since you mentioned that, I actually was wondering about any of the other characters. Were any of the other characters in uh, Hell's Aquarium, or can you mention a couple other characters in there that were from readers?
1: Well, except for a couple of the major characters, they're, they're all readers. And, uh, for instance, um, I had a reader who lost both of his legs. I don't know if it was to diabetes or something like that. But, um, and so I put him as a character, and in the storyline, he loses both of his legs. You know, to yeah. uh, Angel the, the Megalodon who bites him off, and, and so he loved that. he, I mean, he just <laughs> he he just loved that because you know now he's telling his friends that he lost his legs in a shark attack.
0: <laughs> exactly, it's and
1: then, much more interesting. So those are the things I try to do when people have certain things going on with them in their lives. If, for instance, I'm I'm writing a book now, which is the third in the Domain series, My Mind Calendar Story, and and uh, I have a character in there who has emailed me many times, uh, his wife emails me for him because he's blind and he's a diver. And, and you know, so I put him in a story, but his character is blind, just like he is. So I tried not to change the characters, the actual readers' descriptions. I just try to work them into the story, and it, you know, makes for more in-depth, minor character.
0: Now, do you use their real names usually, or do you change them? Oh, yeah, them? yeah, yeah. I mean, do that's okay. the okay. point. That's okay. point. Uh, that's great. So I, I'll have to send you a little uh, bio to get in the next book then. Is, is that what you're saying? There you
1: go. <laughs> so I have Did, seen... Do you uh, want me to kill you in the story or keep you alive? I don't know.
0: Well, may, it, it depends. If you're going to do so, a couple more, you may, you may have to...
1: I guess... I, it, I, I, asked, I asked that, you know... The question. It's not like a tongue-in-cheek question because whenever I do a character contest for the Meg books, the overwhelming majority of people who enter the contest are desperately requesting that i kill them (laughs) and it's just it's just a bizarre thing here these breeders are just it's sort of like become a status (laughs) so probably can't kill everybody i mean i said, well what if you know what if you know you died of syphilis or something like that (laughs) (laughs) nice probably if you ask (laughs) that that wouldn't be as that wouldn't be as attractive you need to die by a shark
0: yeah, exactly, yeah, now that you put it that way, probably if you had asked readers to do this thirty years ago, i bet I'm wonderful that the same uh, number would be wanting to get killed off it's It's almost kind of a cultural thing now, but yeah i think I think if I did die i'd l- I wanted to be for some like great you know like Spockish Some kinda, great kinda, Barola kinda Barola <laughs> exactly like Spock, you know, but then then I'd come back, of course, so. So, um, yeah, going through, um, the internet and, and, uh, some of the articles now, I've heard that a Meg movie's kind of been in the works for like, what, eight, nine years or so? Is that, is that right? And, and what's kind of, what's the status of the Meg movie? I know that's sort of, a lot of people are wondering about that.
1: Well, the story with the Meg movie, the the movie was actually optioned before the book was published. We had a first look deal at Disney's Hollywood Pictures. They snatched it up and, um... Unfortunately, they went through two really bad scripts, and um, then the president of Hollywood Pictures was fired, and when a president's fired, the incoming president doesn't touch any of his projects because that would only make the, the last guy look good. So the rights reverted back to us after a, a year, and then it was optioned by New Line Cinema in 2005, and uh, we had Jan de attached as director, we had a bunch of the high-level producers attached. And, and we had a script that Jan and I had worked on together. Well, they didn't want the script. They wanted to work with another screenwriter, Shane Salerno. And Shane basically rewrote Moby Dick, uh, the Big Shark, and it just didn't work. And um, they uh, returned the property to us after a couple of years. And um, now we've completed financing. We're doing it privately. We've completed private financing for a $150 million movie. And um, you know we're we're taking it out to studios, directors right now. And I wrote a new script parallel to the book of the a more modern version of it.
0: Okay. So I guess you can't really give a prediction. But if you were forced to, under um, pain of shark attack or something, what what would your uh, prediction be for when we may see a movie?
1: Um, uh, probably uh, summer twenty twelve.
0: Okay. No, that's great. Yeah. I, I mean that. I guess your some of your folks had done some of those trailers, and you know the, the trailers themselves are great. I, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that, and I'm, I know a lot of people, you know, will be as well. Now, I, I read a lot about your Adopt an Author program as well. Can you talk a little bit about that program?
1: Yeah, about um, well, I guess it's been about ten years ago, right after May came out, I became inundated with emails from teenagers who were all telling me the same thing. I, you know, Steve, I hate reading, but I loved reading Meg, you know, and I want to read more books like this. And then I started getting email from teachers across the country who were telling me that they they were actually using Meg in the classroom in high schools because it was getting their their uh, students to read. And then I found out that the Young Adult Library Services Association had selected Meg as the number one book for reluctant readers. And the book isn't written for teens. It's an adult <laughs> book. But it was getting teens to read. And those are the subject matter because it was it's a fast-moving story. I mean, there's, there's no dull parts in any of my books. They move pretty fast. So um, I realized that something good was happening. And my background's in education. I have a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degree in education. I'm certified to teach in high school. And And so what I did was I put together a non-profit program called Adopt an Author, and Adopt an Author is essentially a program that offers teachers free curriculum materials, projects, tests, quizzes, study guides, everything they could possibly use a pool of materials to develop curriculums. And in the process of reading the story, the students can email me, and I email them back, and... and, uh, and then at the end of the unit, we do either a conference call into the classroom, or I can visit the classroom if it's you know close you know to my home in Florida. And, and over the years, I've visited over 100 schools, and and have communicated with probably a thousand more. And and um, the program has grown from 10 high schools in in uh, 1999 to over 10,000 registered teachers. So. It's really blossomed that, you know, we have other authors involved, too, but, you know, um, my books are the main thrust of the story, of the program. And it gets teens to read. And the secret behind the program is is really simple. It's if you make reading fun, then people will read. And so it's the subject matter. And what surprised me is that, you know, teachers in English class and reading class we're using the same books that they used when I was in high school. I mean, Romeo and Juliet, The Scarlet Letter, Weathering Heights, I mean, you know, <laughs> right. nothing wrong against the, you know, when somebody exactly. says classics. classics to me, right. yeah. you know, it means that it's just old and they've been, and they're so ingrained in using the same curriculum rather than coming up with something new. So that, you know, when we developed the program, I wanted to make sure that the teachers had curriculum materials so there, there wouldn't be an excuse not to use the program because they had to actually develop their own we we have all the teachers pull their materials into one you know website and then they could pick and choose what they like
0: that's a, yeah it's definitely a great idea and, and you're right and i agree there's definitely room for classics and but if if the kids aren't reading or if it's turning them away from reading then there's definitely has to be some sort of change in approach have any of your teen readers expressed an interest in in marine biology or paleobiology oh can
1: yeah, yeah absolutely I, in fact um there are as many science teachers using the book as there are English teachers. And I get a lot of email from students who say they're going to college for marine biology. And and uh, pretty amazing, you know, just just from reading a book. Now they're interested in making it their their career.
0: That's got kind of to feel pretty good, though, I'm sure. It definitely. As an educator, I'm sure you uh, you appreciate that a lot. So what's next for you, then, in terms of... I know you're working on another book. I actually i am I'm going to start... I haven't gotten through um, some of your other series, uh, and I need to do that, but what's kind of on the uh, on your plate coming up?
1: Well, the biggest and best book that I've written is coming out in, on October 10th, and that's called Grim Reaper and the Days. And, and, and Grim Reaper is a series that parallels Dante's Inferno, and sort of a modern-day Dante's Inferno, and it takes place in New York City. And and uh, when a, a man-made biological plague is introduced into Manhattan, And uh, the hero of the story, who's a a veteran from the Iraqi war, uh, has to travel across Manhattan through the nine layers of hell, to uh, (laughs) the the nine circles of hell, to find his wife and child. And and, uh, it's a very deep book. It took me two years to write it, and uh, I'm just really happy with it.
0: I'm definitely looking forward to reading it. And and, um, you probably didn't even have to stretch New York as hell too much, I'm
1: guessing. Oh, well, you'd be surprised
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding <laughs> well I, I appreciate your time i've got definitely have a lot more questions for you but unfortunately we're out of time i'd like to thank my guest steve alton our producers especially mark winter for making this show possible steve did you have any final thoughts for our listeners
1: just that uh House has aquariums on sale on paperback and uh the hero of the story uh, goes to the university of florida so there's even more reason for it. Gator fans to read the book.
0: Exactly. Go Gators. Definitely. And I guess in one of the other books, they lived in Tampa for a while too, right? Before they moved out. Yes. Well, thanks again, Steve, for joining us. Please be sure to check out Steve Alton's webpages. The links will be on his Aquarium Mania bio page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. You'll find additional pictures from different episodes as well as questions or comments that some of our listeners have. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy, D-R-R-O-Y, at PetLifeRadio.com. That's drroy at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit and the sharks at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. Until next time, please visit your local public aquariums and aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. And if you haven't had a chance to read Hell's Aquarium, Or any of Steve Allen's other books Please put them on your mandatory reading list Let's Talk Pets Every week on demand Only on PetLifeRadio.com